This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. Now, Horns of Odin is a family-run business, and we sell Norse-inspired products. Particularly, we specialise in handmade, handcrafted drinking horns, which I made myself. But alongside that, we have a huge clothing collection. We sell a bunch of different meads. We've got beers and ales. We've got handmade jewellery, books, artwork. So if you like the sound of any of that, pop over to the website. It's www.hornsofodin.com. If you, if you like anything, pop it in the cart. Use the code HORNS10 at checkout, and you're going to get 10% off your entire order. Now, that's HORNS10. It's going to get you 10% off your entire order. It's just a little thank you from us for listening to the podcast. The podcast is also brought to you by our website, NordicMythologyPodcast.com. Some of you have already seen that we've got a bunch of different merch on there. We've got some t-shirt designs. Now, we've just added a brand new limited edition t-shirt. So there's only going to be 100 of these printed. After that, we're never going to print them again. So just pick one up whilst you can. So the design has been done by last week's guest, Jakob, aka Raven from the North, who was on last week's episode. It's a one-off design. Just pop over to the website, have a look. It's Odin and his two ravens. It's a really beautiful t-shirt. I'm definitely going to get one. I think we've sold probably about 25% of them already. So just pop over to NordyMythologyPodcast.com and have a look and see what you think. Right, let's jump into the show. Hello and welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello. So uh, this time we are joined by uh, Chad Zuber, who is a survivalist and YouTuber who makes a lot of awesome and really interesting uh, videos about basic survival, uh, all kinds of sk- uh, skills that you need uh, to live in the land, in nature, off the land, so to speak. So uh, welcome, Chad. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Before we get into the episode, I guess we, what we're going to do is we're going to try and understand how people would have lived in the Viking Age using your expertise of survival and try and get a, an idea of how things would have been and how tough it would have been using kind of your experiences, I guess, um, and see what we can piece together. So obviously this is in an exact science, I guess it's a bit more of an experimental episode in that we, um, but I, I think it should be, should be good fun and there's a, a lot to learn there. One thing I, I have to ask first though is how did you get into all this? So at what point did you go, you know, start everything else? I want to just go and live off the grid um, and learn how to survive on your own. Well, ever since as a child, I always loved being in nature, loved exploring, loved collecting things and just had all that curiosity. And uh, then I just got into the normal routine of life as I grew and, um, you know, with the working and job and just felt this great desire to explore. It was just, it was in me and, and I was just so dissatisfied with my current lifestyle at the time. And um, it it was just always a dream. And I was looking for ways to get out there to somehow get out into nature. 
And uh, I got into photography and uh, that kind of helped open the doors as I was able to uh, go on adventures and I would document them and I would take photographs and, and sell those on stock photo sites. Um, but it was a very slow process. I always, uh, since uh, I was probably about 18, I loved the idea of making movies and video making. And I uh, used to do that with friends a long time ago. And uh, eventually, you know, with YouTube coming out, I started making my own little videos. Uh, typically, they started out being uh, adventure documentaries where I would just go somewhere. Uh, usually it was in Mexico and get off a bus. I'd identify a, a particular landscape or geography on maps. And so I would find buses I could take to these different towns and villages. And, and then I would get off the bus and start walking and I would document the trip. And I'd go alone typically. Um, and I just fell in love with the experience. I, I never had a bad experience. Um, although I was going into places totally unknown to me mm -hmm. and, but it, it was difficult. It was extremely difficult, but at the same time, exhilarating. I, I bet it's, I bet it's really exciting. Kind of. It is. That unknowing. It's the unknown. But like you say, yeah. equally extremely terrifying. Uh, the first time it's a little bit, uh, but I very quickly with every successful mission, I guess you could say, <laughs> I became more and more comfortable. And the more I learned, and it's particularly learning about myself. And that this is going to be particularly um, uh, worth talking about in, in this episode, because uh, a lot, I think a lot of people, they fantasize about living off the grid or going on uh, explore, exploration and adventure in the wilderness. And, you know, you might see movies, Indiana Jones and this and that. And, um, but you really don't realize like you, you may be in extremely great health, you know, you're strong. Uh, but the only reason that most of us have this strength and great health is because we live in the comforts of, of a modern society. We don't have these dangers and the elements eating away at us all the time. And so when you take that away, when you take away a, you know, a constant food supply or a water supply, or your eight hours of rest every night. When you take that away, how does your body respond? And, and that's, uh, that really fascinated me because on, uh, on a few trips, I <laughs> was, they were brutally difficult. I mean, I, I slept minimal, minimal sleep and minimal food and often dehydration and, and getting concerned about finding water and that fear. And, and then how that your mind can be affected by that when you don't know where your next water is coming from and, and you already can't swallow or even talk because your throat is so dry. Um, moments like that, I drank seawater um, one time to get some relief. And, but, you, but through the whole process, you learned, I learned about my limitations. So I, I, you kind of, you set the walls, the boundaries of like, okay, within these boundaries, I can function. It may be difficult, but I know I can function within these boundaries. The people of the past, they had all kinds of little tricks and little things that they could do that would help them to survive these very extreme conditions. I imagine a lot of that is probably lost yes. through time. As yes. we got more and more comfortable, they haven't needed these little tips and tricks anymore. So before we get into necessarily exactly like how maybe the Vikings would relate or how we can relate to that. 
are you completely self-taught? Have you just kind of learned all this stuff from going out there, trial and error, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, and I guess reading books and, and doing some research as well? Yeah, um, I, I'm a little per- uh, interesting in that because I've, I guess you might say it's not stubbornness, but there's it's it's more that I'm I'm open-minded in such a way that I believe that if if I'm if I'm taught everything, it's going to kind of direct my mind to think this certain way, and I believe there's a lot unknown. There's a lot that's still left to be, I should say, rediscovered, you know, like, as you mentioned, the knowledge that, uh, that, that has been lost. And so I, I uh, often prefer to put myself in a position where I, I haven't learned anything. I haven't taught myself about a certain thing. And I go out there and I explore these ideas. Um, that's been the case very much. Um, that has to be quite deadly, though, surely. Uh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> not yet. It, I don't. I don't know. I, I really haven't had a really bad experience. I did attend my very first survival skills uh, class this past weekend, and uh, <laughs> very, very first wow. one. It's a little late. <laughs> so, but it was good, and it really taught me the value of of a teacher or, or of having a mentor. And a big part of learning is learning also how not to do something. Mm-hmm. If you just do it the way that you're supposed to, I think it's very limiting. You know, as you learn a lot from getting things wrong. Yes, it's very frustrating. <laughs> it takes a lot of time, <laughs> but you do learn something more thoroughly that way. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think this is uh, such an interesting topic for me. I find it find it so fascinating. So I guess I guess to relate to to the Vikings, my first question is to pull it back to what you were saying about you know, needing good nutrition to kind of get that big, strong. Obviously, we have this stereotypical image of Vikings, of these tall, broad-shouldered, strong, muscular men who who kind of came over with their um, sort of double-headed axes. And, and, and you know, that, that very much typical image. I imagine that's not the case, maybe from your experience, in the these men, you know, they will have been on a boat for weeks and weeks and I, I can't imagine that that's necessarily how they would have looked you know and we, we could speculate on that uh but um you have to look at the genetics you know mm-hmm. um no doubt they were really tough <laughs> tough people <laughs> no doubt living in in a very harsh environment like that um it's it's truly where the only the strong survive in today's society the weak survive just as well as the strong because of our modern technologies and modern medicine. You know, I mean, you have extremely high uh, level of cases of diabetes and, and, and things. And, uh, and I think a lot of, you know, if, if people lived long enough or were able to, you know, despite being unhealthy um, it, it back in those days, you know, I mean, they, those people would die off, you know, that's just, that's just the, you know, the natural selection, that process. Uh, and, and so the Vikings, they, I, I can only imagine they were very strong people. However, they, you know, it takes a lot of calories to, to sustain a large body. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I was thinking. Also, the, the toll that it must take on the body being on a ship for so long. I know, Mateus, you said earlier that you'd actually spend a couple of weeks on a, a Viking ship. 
I think you, you mm-hmm. said before the show something I'd never I never knew. Um, how much food? Like how much food can you carry on that? You can carry a, a decent amount of uh, uh, food on a Viking ship, depending on, uh, of course, on the um, the design. Um, as far as I remember, the one I I was uh, uh, sailing on, uh, uh, bear with me, I was like three or four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, as far as I remember, it was a replica of um, of one of the uh, smaller. Roskilde ships from Denmark. Uh, I think I think it was the Roskilde Six, if I if I remember correctly. So it's a shorter one, uh, fairly broad. Um, you have two rowers on each side. You have a decent space in the middle, and yeah, you you have a decent loading capacity as well. That's one of the things with the Viking boats that they they had a a, a pretty high loading capacity, and once we get um up towards the the uh, um uh, after sort of like the, the the height of the viking age with all the cool long ships and all that stuff the cargo ships that they have um like uh, this one right here um uh, so the the article tells us in 1025 shipbuilders around Hedeby that's southern Denmark produced much larger vessels as the 25 meter long Hedeby 3 ship shows calculations indicate that it could carry approximately 60 tons that that's a lot <laughs> that's a lot for <laughs> like 60 tons um so so just keep that in mind like, actually these ships could uh, could uh, could carry a decent amount of uh, uh, weight um of course I, I, and all that stuff I, yeah i imagine a a group of of people well, let's say what there's a hundred men on the ship, 50, 80 people on the ship. How many would we be so looking that, at? So the largest ship, as far as I remember, that would be the Scudalot Two, um, which would be able to carry around seventy people, um, okay. right? Just seventy so, people for you know a couple of weeks. I imagine they go through a lot of food, though. Right, and so uh, I actually have we have a picture of it right here. Uh, those ones are pretty. Can you see that one? Those ones are pretty narrow. Um, that's a warship. It is designed for war, not for carrying a lot of uh, bulk goods and and all that stuff. They would have had to have uh, uh, carrier ships, um, uh, cogs of some kind, or whatever you want to call them. Um, Snicking. Is a Scandinavian word, I think, uh, uh, with them, cargo ships. So, so, so that's something to keep in mind too. That a fleet of like warriors from Scandinavia, uh, bound for the English coast, would include uh, several of these warships, right, of probably varying sizes, and then a a whole train of um, of probably cargo ships as well. Also, because you know you want to be able to bring it in all the loot back home, right? Um, and that would be probably the the only, uh, or at least the primary sort of strategic advantage these Vikings had um, that they could take all of the loot, put it on a ship, and just uh, push it offshore instead of having to 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 transport it over land, and that way they could move around much faster. So. Yeah, those are some of the, the, the things to take into consideration with that. 
of course you like i mean uh, this is hardly a safe science right um doing like basically transporting yourself across the north sea back then would have been incredibly dangerous right you could run into a storm at any time and and you could navigate wrong miss your your mark basically find yourself in an entirely different portion of the british isles or maybe even not at all the, the British Isles, right? That, that there could be a lot of uh, variables here that could actually uh, set you off course and really uh, uh, throw a wrench in your gears here. So, so that's also something to take into consideration. So when you're like transporting multiple ships and one ship is, is the one that's supposed to carry your food or uh, other things that you need, um, you could lose that very easily as well. So... So, so that's that's yeah, that's a real risk as well. Yeah, if you if you turned up and your cargo didn't, I imagine that would be a, a nightmare situation where Chad would thrive. <laughs> so, to, to Chad, you said before that you have done you've done a little bit of seafaring, I think. Um I, I'm really interested in like just the toll that being at sea for any long period of time would have on on the human body, I imagine it can't be easy. Even if you had a, enough food, I still, I still imagine it must just be an awful situation to be in. Depends on other factors such as weather. Um, the longest I've actually been on a boat at one time was two days. Uh, fishing as as a as a child, I used to go fishing a lot out in the ocean, and so uh, it was typically fairly calm seas. Uh, never was out there when it was very rough. Um, I used to get seasick often until I eventually got used to it. Uh, the body naturally would just get used to it and then it wouldn't be a problem anymore. Um, but it was, I do remember getting off the boat. You, you still would be like this on land. You couldn't really stand straight. You're like, uh, you know? Um, so I imagine after being on, on a ship for two or three weeks, that that would be pretty severe. They might be walking like that for a week. <laughs> yeah, probably. But, um, I mean, the modern boats are very different from, you know, the boats that they had back then, I'm sure. And I imagine the sleeping accommodations were probably less comfortable. Um, so the, the biggest factors would really be the, the weather, you know, because if you get into rough seas, you know, there's always the danger of capsizing and are being set off course, as you mentioned, Matthias, um, but uh, that that would certainly take a toll, you know, on on the body, no doubt mm -hmm. about it. I yeah. just get just getting wet. Yes, just being wet would be the horrible. exposure. Yeah, the exposure to the elements really it really makes a huge, profound impact on your body. It really, it just it's like it just sucks away your energy. You know, I've I've experienced that just just being outdoors, just being being outside where you're exposed to the wind and the sun. Uh, or, or the rain, the humidity, whatever it is, uh, do that all day versus being indoors. There's something about that, especially in Scandinavia with all the rain that we get, like you just get angry. You just <laughs> you start snapping at each other and it's just like, <laughs> it's That's just a miserable. Good point. <laughs> yeah. I, um, now I haven't been, I haven't been over in Europe before, but I've been to Alaska and Southeast Alaska. It, in the summertime, it literally, it usually, it rains almost every day. 
And uh, <laughs> what you mentioned that uh, really uh, reminds me of hiking with a friend of mine in the mountains there. And it was just this constant drizzle. And he was getting so mad <laughs> and cursing. <laughs> and he was so upset with it, you know, because you just get everything is just wet and it gets heavier. And it's just it's annoying. We're not you know, we're not fish. We're not designed or made to be in the water, you know, and be constantly wet. So it definitely takes a toll on us. That's my Swedish uh, hiking and canoeing experience right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, that that's exactly what I'm, I'm thinking. This, you know, you've got a bunch of guys all on a, on a ship crossing, crossing the sea. Even if it's nice weather, I imagine you're still going to get wet from waves mm -hmm. splashing over. And he must just get irritable and they must have had like fights breaking out. Just having that, like you said, that exposure outside. I imagine sleeping conditions aren't going to be the best. It, it must just be a miserable time. Absolutely. So a couple of things in terms of like technology, what did they have to sort of guard themselves from the weather and all that stuff? Um, it, we know from 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 some literature um uh, that they would cover the boats with hides um ox hide typically uh, at least uh, that's that's according to to a couple of sources and aside from that we we also know that they would um uh, wear uh, um, clothing made of and i believe the english word is freeze um so this is um, a, a this is I don't know how to describe it properly, um, but it's a, um, a it's a type of uh, tight packed, as far as I remember, tight packed wool clothing that has been weatherproofed with um, with some kind of fat, as far as I remember. It's really heavy. And that, that's, that, that's, again, a problem that you didn't have that you're carrying around several extra pounds, right? So, yeah. And, um, but, but it, would, it would protect you for the, from the environments. And I'm, I'm sure that some leather, um, uh, some kind of leather outfit would also have, uh, have been used as well. I, I think it, it's safe to, um, to remember that they, you know, they were probably more used to it than, than we are. If you put me on the ship, for two weeks i'd just be sat underneath a chair probably crying whereas <laughs> for them i guess they didn't have the modern comforts that we have so it was a little more bearable i imagine or normal well yeah and, and another thing is also you would do it at a certain time of year so in scandinavian april is the sailing month so 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 that's when you do do this right you 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 sail uh, to england and raid england in april that's when it starts because that's the most comfortable time to do it yeah i can't stop just stop thinking about how uncomfortable it would be just with a bunch of like i like my friends but if you left me alone with them for two weeks i know for a fact that there's a few of them i'd want to throw so i imagine that must be the situation especially when it's you know that you imagine it's probably gonna be quite hot-headed sort of more violent type it must just break out into some sort of fisticuffs i mean yeah i i 
you can probably assume that. But but on the other hand, that is also why humans have come up with warrior rituals and and all the the mythology around being a warrior in and of itself. That's part of also tempering you as a warrior when you are in those very annoying situations where you just have to march for for several hundred miles that way or sit on a ship for for several weeks right um you that like those uh, those rituals that would have preceded becoming a warrior in different ways apart from also partaking in battles with one another would be part of also building up a group discipline that would uh, restrain some of that. I would, I would suggest at least. So, so Chad, when let's say you know you have a Viking ship full of full of soldiers, warriors, and when they get to the English coast, if it was the the first time they ever arrived, and there wasn't a camp already set up, what's the first thing that you would do in in a foreign land that you don't know you don't understand how on earth do you start to even make that that situation beneficial for yourself but survive and then also thrive and and make a an inhabitant there in a, in a little civilization well i would imagine that um i mean the the priorities vary based on the needs which can be affected by the weather um and the just simply the the landscape uh if those areas quite have quite a bit of water. Whereas where I live here in Southern California, water is, is a little more hard to come by. And we have a warmer climate, which it makes a shelter, having a warm shelter less important here than in Scandinavia. So I would imagine that they probably had skins and, and stuff that they could, uh, materials that they could set up a, a very quick shelter to, uh, just to get started, they would set out to, they would, the, if they have food still with them when they arrive, they would rely on that initially, but uh, immediately they would start you know, combing the landscape and identifying plants that they're familiar with, uh, so, you know, keeping their eye open for animals, tracks, they'd be searching, following tracks and trying to identify what kind of animals those may be. Uh, they'd be on the coast, and so the the coast is always a rich place to find food. Uh, mollusks, clams, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that grow right there in the tidal zone that they can eat. Algae, sea algae is very nutritious, and uh, just about all of it's edible. And then uh, fishing, I'm sure they had fishing equipment, uh, lines and hooks and weights, and they would uh, start doing that. And they would encounter, they would find pro- very much similar fish because it's not that f- far away. Um, it's not like another ocean. So they would, um, you know, they would slowly, you would start with a simple shelter. And then as you're finding food and supplies or resources, you would build it, you know, you would build a more permanent structure and, and several of them and uh, whatever other, uh, you know, maybe a, a, uh, like a barn or something to store, store food. And maybe they bring livestock with them too. Right. I was going to say, is that something that there was a case? Would they bring their own livestock, livestock with them or would they rely on being able to find it? I guess where, where they were going. 
They would definitely for, you know, a, a, the purposeful colonization efforts bring livestock and uh, maybe even grain storages and stuff like that with them. Uh, perhaps butter, um, a yogurt in the form of um, skir, as it is called in Icelandic, the, the, the thing they sell at Whole Foods here in the U.S., <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, along with coconut water, uh, so yeah, that, <laughs> they would uh, they would bring that stuff with them, except the coconut water. They wouldn't have that. Um, <laughs> um, to places like Iceland, and uh, judging from the stories that we have, right, of uh, of what happens next, apart from you know. Uh, a, a very ritualized uh, experience where they would actually take land um, following a ritual that involved the gods and all that stuff. They, um, and I mean, we don't actually know if they did that. That's just what the later stories are telling us, of course. Um, they would um, uh, build a house, right? They would probably be living in tents first. Um, you could use the sail from the uh, Viking ship as a, as a tent. Um, you could uh, maybe even uh, use the boat itself as some kind of shelter. Um, and mind you, these, these boats are pretty light in, in, in a certain way. We know that in Russia, when they were moving through the river systems, they would, they would, they would drag them between rivers. Um, so, so, th so that's something that they would be familiar with too. And um, of course, what we realize from the early settlement stories in Iceland is that it's cold. It's um, it's a it's a pretty pretty rough environment, even for a Norwegian farmer. This is one of the first stories. The famous Floki, uh, whom we know from Vikings, who went there and settled. He he's the first to realize this is a really cold place, and he actually has to abandon his settlement because his cattle die because he hasn't collected enough feed. So that right there, you have a uh, environmental. Uh, realization that uh, some of the first settlers did. Of course, we don't know if it was a man named Floki. We just know that this is something they found out as one of the first things when they came to Iceland. So um, what they would do is that very quickly, they would probably have built that house structure that they needed, a communal house, long those long houses that, that um, we know from... from um, popular visions of Vikings, then uh, that would be an interior structure of wood with, um, I'm not entirely sure if they would use uh, interlaced um, uh, like branches with, um, with clay on them in Iceland, but they would definitely use uh, uh, turf, right? So uh, cutting out pieces of that it's called turf right in yeah. english uh cutting out pieces of top layer of soil uh held together by um uh, by grass and then stacking that uh on the outside of the uh the wood structure and uh, that would then insulate from the cold climate and if they had brought livestock in that situation right I think actually, you know, some of the last Icelanders to live in, in houses like that, that's like only a couple of generations ago. 
Um, and some of my Icelandic friends have told me over the years that their grandparents would live in in, in houses that uh, didn't have floors and, and stuff like that, and so out in you know uh, in small farms. So yeah, um, they would uh, make sure to to start collecting feed uh, basically by harvesting, um, cutting cutting the 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 naturally growing uh, grass around the area um, in the pastures um, and make sure to, to stack that in a barn that they would also have built. So that would be probably sort of the, the main uh, um, sort of broad spectrum um, processes that would happen first when you got there um, in the North Atlantic. That can't be a quick process, just pop i know you say you know they built a they built a barn they built a longhouse it's like that must take some time they're not simple easy kind of quick structures they must take some knowledge so you have to i guess survive off the land before you can get your animals grazing get everything built you must have some understanding of what you can eat naturally and you're feeding quite a few people and that just absolutely fascinates me. But I, as I say here, and I'm kind of thinking internally, I'm kind of thinking probably how much of an anomaly Chad is in modern day to, to people who have no idea of the things that he knows, whereas it was probably the other way around back then that people like me that know absolutely nothing of this were probably a rarity and we starved, starved and died, whereas <laughs> everybody probably had the knowledge that Chad had, he was like one of these things that was, I imagine was just passed down from generation to generation because it was so important, whereas maybe it's not as important now because, like we said before, you have mod mod cons to survive. It, we can also compare with uh, some other scenarios, right? Um, uh, one of the things that I'm familiar with through what I teach is, uh, of course, uh, um, what I l like to call British gentlemen bumbling around in the Arctic. Um, there are some fascinating stories about the uh, um, typically British military guys, right? Uh, Franklin is one of the the, the, the famous ones um, who who goes to the Arctic in, in in two ships and disappears, and everybody ends up eating each other, and I don't know what. Um, that's a great example of 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 how you don't survive, right? In a in a harsh environment. There are other examples of. Um, uh, of, of similar situations where where we have explorations in the Bering Grounds in in what is now Canada, um, where uh, the, the you know the logs that they have kept give us really good ex uh, sort of insight into all the mistakes they make, right? And this is um, this is well 200, 150 years ago, um, uh, um, and and. What we always see is, of course, that those who have grown up with survival experiences of various kinds and and basic uh, learning uh, of techniques of uh, various kinds, that in these cases would be Native Americans that are with them on these trips. They're the ones who survive, right? Um, whereas <laughs> you have these uh, British officers eating their shoes, um, <laughs> the, the Iroquois guy that they brought with them, he's like out hunting. <laughs> And, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, Chad, one thing I wanted to ask is how much of this do you think is innate? Because obviously you're out, you, you've been out in some situations where you've had to rely on yourself to figure stuff out, what you can eat, 
what you can't eat. And I guess back back in the back ages, some of it will have been passed down. But do you think some of it is just it's kind of passed down through maybe genealogy, I guess, and you just know instinctively what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Because I've never really been in that position where I've had to rely on myself to to figure it out. I'd just pick the first berry up and try it, and it probably would go terribly wrong. I'm sure people did that too and died. And, you know, when they saw Billy lying on the ground next to that poisonous bush, they put two and two together. <laughs> yeah. we should, we, maybe we should avoid that. Um, but this was this was how people lived all the time. Now, today, today we have so many different career paths and uh, types of studies, you know, in school and all these different subjects and stuff. Uh, back then, you know, kids were learning survival skills at a very young age. They didn't have cell phones and, and uh, Minecraft. They, you know, they would accompany the parents out on, you know, uh, collecting food or whatever, or, or, or taking care of the livestock. I mean, this, this is stuff they learned at a very young age, which today's millennials wouldn't dare do anything like that, <laughs> you know, for the most part. So today's kids, they grew up with z- almost zero survival skills. And mm-hmm. they, they learn to just rely on society, you know, get a job and be told what to do. Whereas, uh, you know, back then they were uh, very much more self-sufficient. But going to a new place, obviously they would encounter plants and animals and other dangers that they weren't familiar with. But there is a way to safely, uh, more or less safely experiment and and sample Get someone else to try it first. Well, that's one way. That's <laughs> that's the quickest way to figure it out. And Convince I'm sure, your friend. Are you sure, exactly i'm sure people did that and uh just to observe the 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 results you know but for instance if you if you encounter a plant you're not familiar with you can uh there's a, a simple test where you just simply increase your exposure to it you know first you touch it and you, you it's a very long it takes a few days to really correctly do it but uh, by touching the plant, you know, you observe if there's any kind of reaction on your skin, then you might apply the plant, you know, break it open and rub the leaf on, on a more sensitive area, such as a wrist or your inner arm. And you wait to see if there's a reaction. If there's a reaction, then you're probably, you're not going to eat it, right? Um, then you, you can touch it to your lips and observe if there's a reaction. Touch, put it on your tongue. Is there a reaction? Chew a little bit, spit it out. Is there a reaction, you know, then taste, actually swallow a tiny bit and see if there's a reaction. Um, now, granted, this ha- can't be, you can't t- test several plants at the same time, because if you do and you have a reaction, mm-hmm. you won't know which one caused a reaction. So that's why it's a very slow process. But eventually, and I've done this, I've done this with unknown plants. I've eaten several plants that I didn't know. Um, and I have determined that, um, not, not always, but in most cases, they were edible. Um, I have eaten some poisonous, a few poisonous plants. In most cases, a toxic plant is just going to cause indigestion. You know, it's going to give you diarrhea or something like that. I imagine that can, I mean, that's not good at the best of times. But when you're out right, somewhere right. on your own in a harsh, harsh environment, I imagine that's 10 times worse. It, yes, yeah, it can be, uh, it can be deadly you know, because you suffer dehydration then. And um, yeah, it can, it can, it can be the thing that just, that breaks you. 
Um, mm-hmm. Mushroom, mushrooms, however, can be more dangerous because if you make a mistake with mushrooms, it's uh, it can be very deadly very quickly. Um, and and there's yeah, mushrooms are a little more tricky. I imagine that mushrooms is probably something you'd have quite a lot of in in England as well, where they've been such a moist, absolutely, yeah, moist climate. They would be abundance i mean i'm i've never been a fan of mushrooms there's there's something about the taste <laughs> but the, the texture of them for me this is my my spoiled uh modern self coming out it's like that texture is just a little too off-putting for me but i guess if i had nothing else to eat then then of course i would i would uh have to have a go yeah but plants however are not a very good source of calories you're not gonna you're not gonna meet your nutritional needs by eating leaves uh, roots are good and seeds or nuts. You've just upset um, so many vegetarians right, right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, can... I, I'm sure. And, uh, that, that, <laughs> I, I've made that, I've made that point out before because I've gone to places, you know, with very limited food and I end up, you know, scavenging for things to eat and, <laughs> and I've lost a lot of weight and strength, you know, very quickly just eating plants and, you know, eventually you can just be so weak that, you know, you're not able to really function properly. Uh, so animals are definitely the best source then. And that's why, you know, virtually possibly every culture, maybe not everyone, but most of them relied on animals as a source of food. You can, you kill one squirrel, you get a, a lot, you know, there's, it can feed you for a day, you know, it'll, it'll sustain you not too bad or a rabbit, you know, but leaves will never provide uh, enough nutrients uh, there's just not enough protein and fat protein and fat is the is the best source of nutrition for for these uh, situations when we get into the, uh, the 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 regions that you go and survive in i, I imagine that uh you know various kinds of insects and larvae are yes. are good sources of uh, protein right and, and absolutely um yeah yeah, many cultures and, and even today they eat a lot of insects. Um, I, I've eaten a lot of live insects. Typically, you know, um, yeah, there's a little danger in that. I've been warned because of parasites, but I've, I've never had a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've eaten a lot of grasshoppers, um, ants, ants fi- finding an ant hill in the desert and and just smashing them and then eating them. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's. It's a readily available source of protein and fat, and uh, they, they're very nutritious and healthy. Yeah, yeah. So in in Scandinavia uh, and in the North Atlantic in general, I wouldn't go for uh, uh, insects that much, but because they're they're quite small uh, generally. I, I would say they are they're small. Good. You have to collect That's a lot. That's how we like enough. it. Yeah, <laughs> we like them that way. But fish, right? Fish is is the thing that a Viking would survive on. I'm I'm sure in um, uh-huh. in 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 this journey across the, the North Atlantic in different ways, right? You start in Norway. Let's say Norway. You start there by already having caught a bunch of fish. You dried them so that they preserve longer, and. Um, Maybe you've even also um, fermented some sheep's meat or something like that, so that you can preserve that for for a journey. Um, and then you know you're fishing uh, uh, along the way, uh, regardless of where you're going. Right, that, that's one of the main things that you would always be doing. Um, we have some examples, right, of uh, of of cuisine, curious cuisine, North Atlantic cuisine that has come out of uh, probably survival situations and going back to this thing of like 
figuring out if something is poisonous, right? The Greenlandic shark that is that um, is being eaten in Iceland, it needs to ferment for about three months or so um, because it stores ammonia in, in, in its muscle tissue. Interesting. Yes. So right there, you have that uh, trial and error scenario where somebody has been like, hey, Olaf, uh, try this <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> Olaf died. Well, next one, right? And so they found out that the, the fermentation period is about three months, and then you have to hang it a little bit too, and then, then you can eat it, right? Um, you have similar things with um, uh, fermented sheep, as I mentioned, um, or buried sheep as well. So, you know, put a sheep in the ground and let it lie there for some time. When we go to Inuit cultures in in in, uh, in Greenland and, and uh, Arctic Canada, uh, then we find, um, uh, what is it, Gibiak, as a, a particular interesting um, uh, type of food uh, where you take uh, birds and put them into a seal skin that has the fat on the inside. So you've basically just taken the, the skin off without the, taking off the fat. Then you sew, sew that into a bag and then you put that in the shade, some nice and cool place for a month or so. Wow. And then you, you can take those um, fermented birds out again and, and eat them. Um, There's a lot, seems to be a lot of fermenting going on here yeah because so so what we're dealing with here is is a climate where those kinds of things work a little better than the the, the, the hotter climates uh so that's that's one aspect of it aside from that that is the way that you increase the longevity of uh of sustenance in different ways right so mm -hmm. but uh but always you would be focused i'm sure on on fishing and also hunting grounds. It, one interesting thing that we see in um, in Greenland with these Scandinavian uh, uh, pastoralists and peasants is really what they are when they come there, right? Is that over time um, from the, the colonization happens in the late 900s. And so uh, the, the community dies out in somewhere in the mid 1400s. And over that period of time, they, the, the climate gets harsher. And we can also see from their uh, trash heaps and stuff like that, that they have gone more, or pivoted more and more towards hunted animals, which tells, uh, that tells us then that, that their um, agricultural skills were failing in a climate that was getting colder. And they were, were resorting to fishing and hunting more. So that's something to uh, uh, to consider as well. It's sometimes you have to simply like shift in another direction, and then then the things that you've learned, because otherwise you can't um, survive. We also have um, an interesting example of the story of the Vikings that go to Vinland, to North America, that they're starving at one point, and um, and then they find a whale. Actually, the story goes that this guy goes up on a mountaintop and then he lies there under a, a cover for, for three days, I think it is. And then he comes back and then there's a beach to whale and then they eat the whale and then they get sick and he reveals that he had been praying to, to Thor, I think it was, <laughs> to get it. And, and 
there's a whole like there's a there's a little thing about Christianity in there as well. The, the, <laughs> the, the Christian crew are like, no, we can't do that. And then this guy uh, runs off with the, the the pagans to to the north, as it says. But uh, what we're told here is that they eat this whale, and then they get sick from the meat, which is of course again. Uh, some kind of lesson about the environment as well and about finding animals like that and what do you do with them. Iceland has a, has had plenty of laws when it comes to what you can and cannot do with beached whales, uh, who owns it and all that stuff. And that tells you again, a beached whale would then also be um, a useful source of, of food um, for, for whoever finds it, right? I imagine that feeds a lot of people as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing is people probably look to food differently as well. Obviously, in modern times, we have very much a, a pleasure-based link with food. Or no, I certainly do. You know, I eat because I, I like the taste of it. Whereas I imagine it was very much survival-based. And so it didn't necessarily matter, didn't necessarily matter what it was as long as you were getting that nutritional value to, to survive. I'm, Chad, I, I imagine some of the bugs you've eaten aren't the nicest. I, I uh, over the years, I've become very uh, self-controlled with diet. Many of the things that people find very tasty and delightful, I uh, I turn away from. You know, sugars and stuff like that. So I, I have no, I have very little temptation with any of that. Um. But like we you had mentioned before, if you weren't exposed to McDonald's or, you know, Chinese restaurants and all that stuff, because it just didn't exist then, you know, you, you only knew, you know, uh, maybe two dozen different food items. You know, that's all you knew. You go to supermarkets today and there's hundreds and thousands of choices, you know, so you wouldn't have had the opportunity to create this um, food addiction you know, that we yeah. have today. Um, but, you know, meats uh, cooked in the fat is very tasty. It is very tasty. It was then and it is today, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So um, I, I think that was the the main source of food. And uh, and people today, I, I have friends that are carnivores that have switched to only eating animals and they feel better they're they have better health as a result I, there's numerous people that have done that um you know they're going back to that and and that's very much the way especially in those i think in those northern those northern latitudes uh there's, where there's not a lot of plant life growing you know especially through the winter um, mm -hmm. you, you know you had mentioned the fermentation uh which uh, that's, that's fascinating and uh, that's done been done throughout the world you know even in tropical climates a, a fermentation was uh well, cassava, you know, uh, was had, had to be fermented in, in order to make it safe to eat. And and the process to discovering that is, yeah, it's absolutely that. You know, someone tried something and was like, oh, you know, uh, eating raw cassava, first of all, is, is not tasty. It doesn't – our taste buds do give us an indication of something that's good or not um, for a lot of things. I mean, obviously not like a chili pepper or garlic, which – you know, are kind of strong tasting. You might think that they're poisonous at first. Um, and I'm sure uh, just through trial and error, you know, experimentation and, and observing what happens, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I guarantee there are a lot of people that ate some, ate things and died and the rest of the population around them, you know, friends or people or 
they observed that and, and, and others that became terribly ill and they survived and you'll learn your lesson through that. And, and that's, and all this information is just passed from generation to generation. I mean, obviously those were, those were super important things, you know, as, as we're talking about earlier, how today's children, or to, you know, most people today wouldn't be able to identify the poisonous plants in their landscape. But then everybody knew it was, it was crucial for their survival. You know, so it was common knowledge then. Chad, I imagine you've been in some pretty sticky situations at some point or where things aren't necessarily going your way and you have to survive. And, and the human body is a tough, tough thing. How much of it can you just figure out? You know, when it comes to medicine, are you able to know what, what's going to help, what's not going to help, what you need to do? Like, how, how does that work? That yeah, the medicine that's uh that's a whole nother topic. Um I really haven't pondered that very much. Um me personally, I've never really used any modern any uh medicine out in out in nature, you know, that I've collected or anything like that. Um I mean I've I've taken plants that are considered medicinal, you know, as a tea just 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 for the heck of it, but not to particularly treat anything. And I would suspect that that was probably quite common to uh, regularly take uh, medicinal teas, perhaps, or other plants, just as kind of your daily maintenance, you know, or weekly or whatever, just um, because it was probably, you know, uh, you want to prevent an illness. Uh, Prevention, I think, would have been very important because if you get something, then overcoming it it would be very, could be very difficult. you know, so I think prevention, that's, that's how I tend to think about it um, when I'm out there, but trying to, I, I, I don't think they really had a way to determine if something actually worked medicinally. Um, it'd be really hard. I mean, if you think about it, because in most cases, if you get sick, if you just wait, you give it enough time, your body heals you know? And so a lot of times people take a medicine or they'll take a herbal remedy or something and they get better and they owe it all to the medicine. But is that, did the medicine really do anything? You know, because if mm-hmm. you don't do anything, most likely you're going to recover. Generally bitter things, things that are very bitter tend to be medicinal, you know, such as garlic or onions, um, uh, chili peppers. Uh, there's, there's a ton of herbal, uh, leaves, you know, that, uh, that are very bitter, uh, certain seeds, cloves. Um, uh, they're very, they're very strong, not necessarily bitter, but very strong in flavor or mm-hmm. scent. Um, and those tend to be the more medicinal plants, um, in many cases. So have you ever, have you ever really kind of worried for yourself or been ill or hurt? So I was wondering yeah. on that, on that mindset of, of what you do, whether you think, I need to try and find something to help heal myself or do you just think I need to take cover and re- recuperate or how that, how that works? The only times that happened to me was in Mexico in a, uh, in a tropical, almost jungle area. And um, let's say one time, actually two times, I think I had a bit of dysentery uh, perhaps from the water. And I had, so it, it caused some diarrhea it was mild. Um, and with that, I, it, it wasn't bad enough to, to really stop me. 
so I didn't, I wasn't thinking about treating it. Um, I ate less, um, and just, um, you know, I just endured it. It, it wasn't a big deal. Again, it was mild. Another time, um, suddenly my lower back just went, it just went out. I was in, in, in terrible pain and like bending over was very painful. Um, and in that case, I just had to compensate. I had to, you know, just improvise and, and just tough it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have found that I call it survival mode. It seems like something happens to the body when you are in a, in a situation where it's starting to get a little <laughs> quite very uncomfortable or, or, or you know, per, perhaps dangerous, you know, your body, uh, the adrenaline or whatever it might be. But I have found that, I mean, I've walked barefoot, I've walked barefoot out of that same jungle for several miles um, uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, but, you know, once I got to civilization, it's just, that's when it just hits you and you feel it and you're just exhausted and, and your body just starts to hurt so much mm-hmm. all over. But it's after you get out of the situation that your body, like, it like relaxes and it kind of mm-hmm. gives in, you know, and so that's what I, I, I refer that to survival mode. Cause I experienced that so many times where it's just, it's, it's, you're just giving your all, you know, I haven't eaten for two days and barely any sleep. And it's just, I'm just amazed that I'm able to keep going. But as soon as I get back to the vehicle or I get back to the city, then I re- it hits me and I'm just, just destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. Sleep. <laughs> So I just want to go back to this uh, thing about garlic. Just fun fact. In the medieval period in Europe, uh, garlic was the thing that people used to um, uh, improve their breath. <laughs> just <laughs> wouldn't you believe that? <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Um, so, so, so chewing on garlic was simply a thing uh, that you did to to overcome the stench of your mouth. Um, I mean, and, that that says a lot about how bad your breath must have been. Right. Yeah. Right. But, uh, there's another aspect <laughs> to it, right? So, so of course, you know, people had um, would you know their teeth would rot um they would they would be eating things that um that slowly over time would would of course take their toll on the uh, on the teeth and you would uh, have a rotten tooth and you wouldn't necessarily be able to just pull it out and and so on and you know there, there are antiseptic qualities to garlic and so that's one of the, the the things that people would be eating to sort of like try to relieve that um and i think it helped at least to an extent the same with uh, when it comes to Northern Europe, uh, honey is is another um, antiseptic uh, agent in its raw form, at least um, that um, uh, that would be helpful. And there's there's honey does you know feature as as an important element in 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 mythology from from Northern Europe and Europe in general. So so that's that's definitely two things, garlic and honey, that would be probably both available to Vikings, but definitely a little later on in the medieval period that, mm-hmm. that they would be uh, um, using a lot. Um, so 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 that's that's definitely two, two things that yeah. Um, I do love the smell of wild garlic as well. Right. Something, there's something about it. I wonder whether that's kind of like a natural thing. It's just this smells good. 
Yeah, there's um, uh, there's a certain type of uh, wild growing onion in 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 Denmark that in in April and uh, Northern Europe, not just Denmark, but the, I've experienced it in Denmark. That uh, yeah, around April, it just makes the entire forest smell like onion. <laughs> You're like Whoa, here too. Here yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's a very localized. Uh, very small demographical area for this onion. It's called early onion. It comes up in April, April, mm-hmm. May. And yeah, it just, it just smells so wonderful. You just, you just walking through that area. It just, uh, it's actually where I have my hut. It grows all around there. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. yeah I, I mean, I find this topic so interesting and just trying to put your, your mindset into how these people would have been. Cause I think it's easy when we, and we do these episodes and we speak about just the, the factual based events to to forget that there were real people, but also just you just just look at the event in itself and not think about how they would have lived and thought and acted and reacted to things. And it's such a like I say, it's such a fascinating topic for me to try and literally put myself in that mindset because we are so different now. And we've changed so much to to try and strip that away and look at it from their, their perspective so you can kind of learn and see how they saw things and hopefully understand the mythology better and what you want to learn about the Viking Age better as well. Yeah, um, there's something that's actually striking me here in terms of like how we think about people in the past. Um, and and that comes from the fact that my dog ran into a tree yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite hilarious. <laughs> just, just like came bolting and couldn't stop, and then boom! <laughs> and and that made me think of cats uh, that fall off everything all the time, right? We have like this. <laughs> you just think about a cat, right? Like it's so many times the cat fails at whatever it's trying to do. And then you have one of those, if you manage to film it, then you have something that you can share on, 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 on social media and it might go viral. Right. I'm just thinking about it. So, so we, we had this tendency to think about animals uh, like these fine tuned machines that, uh, that, that can just like go until one day they drop dead. Right. And I think sometimes we 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 make uh, I mean I think that's a that's not the appropriate way to always think about animals in the same way humans in the past. I mean, there's 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 been a lot of people screwing up for us to get to the point where we are at now, right? And and thankfully for 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 in many cases that screwing up hasn't necessarily like been so detrimental that they died and couldn't reproduce. Um, um, or maybe they died later, but I just wanted to like throw it out there that that there is also you know a lot to be said for half-assing it in different ways, right? There's a lot of people in history who have half-assed it uh, too, um, with their survival skills in different ways, and just made it, you know, so that they could reproduce, and then and then down the line, here I am, right? Right, <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think I think the way that people looked at things would have been completely different. I, I guess the most obvious one is the the modern relationship to meat and how a lot of people look at look at meat and even a lot of people who eat meat but wouldn't be willing to kill the animal themselves or 
wouldn't even want to watch the animal being killed. Whereas back then it would have just been part of it. You know, you you trapped your trapped the animal, you you it, killed it, you put it. Another thing, just and you ate. Sorry to interrupt here, but also another thing: the things, the meat that people eat nowadays. I mean, that's that's an entirely different thing from what it means to eat an animal. Like you know, it, you know when I was a kid in Greenland, there, there's like several parts of an animal that you would eat raw, right? Such things as liver, uh, the the fat from the seal. You, I hated that. You take that a bite from of that fat and it just melt in your mouth, and it was the most disgusting thing ever. But on the other hand, who I, even are you? We've done. <laughs> 50 odd episodes of this and I, I feel like I don't know you, <laughs> I you, about you. <laughs> one thing that I would love on the other hand that I still love I get hungry just thinking about it is seal soup or uh, raw whale skin you chew on that and that's something wow. that you just go chew on uh, I mean popularly it's called Greenlandic gum right because <laughs> I would love to try that through. I would love to try that it's one of the most delicious things, in my opinion. <laughs> but of course, like a lot of people, uh, it, it, you know, when I teach uh, subjects on the Arctic in uh, in my classes, um, I show pictures of this to give my students a sense of like, what is the difference between the life that you're living here in comfortable continental America, as opposed to what what is the, the type of life that has traditionally played out in the Arctic and is still in different ways playing out. And, and, you know, the disgust on their faces is, is quite obvious sometimes when I show them these uh, pictures of that kind of food, right? Because it's so far from the imagination. Like, we think of meat as like this nice red piece of, of, of beef that you get, right? Well, and it, that's really it's it. It's in a nice packet with a bit of cellophane over the top and doesn't yeah. look like the animal that has been anthropomorphized. I can't even say the word, anthropomorphized. Something. And everyone yeah. knows the word. It's the one we can't <laughs> know which pronounce. One <laughs> yeah. But there's been that word in kind of Disney and on TV and in films and, and made very human-like. And, and so people have an attachment to the animals. So what you, what you get when you eat, when it gets to eat, it, it doesn't look like it did then so you kind of have this removal from it whereas it would have been very much just the normal thing i guess back there and I imagine you you've probably done this yourself chad you've you've set a trap you've caught something you've had to kill it eat it and that's just the way it is that's how it you had to do it to survive i haven't done a lot of trapping i but uh, i've done a lot of fishing um I've, I've hunted a, a few, some animal, the rattlesnake. <laughs> um, it wasn't like I had to do it to survive, but it's just, I mean, I mean, here it's more, it's just, you're doing it to practice um, those skills, mm-hmm. uh, but fishing and, um, and all that. And so I, but I can understand because as a child, uh, you know, growing up in, in this, this culture and society here, you know, I remember, I learned that it's best to kill the fish completely as quickly as possible because if it, if it stayed alive, I would eventually want to throw it back. You know, it's like, wow, this one's tough. You know, you start, 
you, you, you create, you have this kind of bond or attachment to it, you know, because it's, it's alive. It's almost like it's becoming your pet, you know, it's in the bucket or it's on the stringer or something, but it, and it's not, you know, it's still swimming around and you start to feel remorse for it <laughs> and then want to throw it back. When you I was, know, sorry, sorry, this is going to make me sound like a psycho, but when I was a kid and we had caught the fish in Greenland, we would, we would make sure to, uh, to keep them alive as long as possible so that we could cut the heart out and then have it like thopping in your hand. Wow. <laughs> that, that was our thing. <laughs> you that, get a, I think you get a, like a, a different uh, you know, perspective on these kinds of things. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But that's, I mean, I'm sure some people listening, listening to this, that probably sounds like absolute savagery. And you, it's something that they would never imagine doing. And I think even just that small difference even in modern days from yourself to like say whoever's listening to it just shows the differences that we must have now compared to how they would have been a thousand years ago and what they would know what they would have done and what was just acceptable and it wasn't that it's right or wrong good or bad it was just how it was then and things are different now and i think people forget forget that and they look back and go oh well they were just really mean to animals or something like that and it's like that, that just wasn't the case it was just different mm, yeah yeah i mean and you you know this anthropomorphizing of one of us will get there <laughs> of 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 the animals i mean um yeah it's it's interesting to consider because like on the other hand um, as we're sitting here talking about food, I'm getting more and more hungry and my mind starts <laughs> like thinking about the things that I would like. And like one of the things I would really like to do is like go to Iceland and go straight to the bus station in Reykjavik, where the, the, the tourist bus station where they, they sell uh, sheep's head. Um, so you can get like half a, half a boiled sheep's head with the mashed potatoes. It's one of the most delicious things in, in, in my opinion. And so many people won't read it, right? Because, you know, it's staring at you. Um, I've had goat head. Yeah. Goat head, yeah. It was, it was uh, at a Nigerian restaurant in Chicago. And it's prepared much the traditional way. Um, they, they take the brain and they make a salsa, a, a sauce out of the brain. And so you, you have this brain, um, you know, mixed in there and, and all parts of the meat from the, the skull, all, everything, the eyes. And so you have these big eyes floating in there. And I tell you, the eyes were the tastiest part. They were the most wow. delicious. They are. See, even, even, even to me, I'm like, that sounds so, so weird. But then I also, my, my brain kicks in and it's, it's also, I'm a, I'm a huge believer that if you ever kill an animal you should make the absolute most most of that you should use every part of it you should eat as much as you can you should use as much as you can you should have no waste so it makes perfect sense that you would eat the head eat the eat the brains the eyes you eat eat it all because at the end of the day you might not know when you're next going to eat or you might not know the next animal you're going to catch but it still seems really weird to me too. Yeah, in today's culture. But there's a lot of nutrients that are specifically available in the organs that you don't find mm -hmm. in the meat. And they're very important nutrients uh, for optimal health. Uh, but yeah, even as I've learned all of this, I've come to where, um, I mean, just wasting, throwing away a piece of meat is 
or any part of an animal to me is uh, is very disgraceful. It's it's very disrespectful to the animal. And when you think about it, it's it's sacrificed its life. It's given its life up so that those that are eating it have life, you know, to extend their life, right, for our nutrition. And to throw in the trash a piece of meat or fat or any part of an animal, and then it goes to the trash. I mean, that, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. I kind of think about it, you know, uh, we would cert certainly wouldn't do that with our loved ones, you know, they die and we just throw them in the dumpster, right? You know, in, in a sense, that's what's happening with uh, so much of our food or, or the animals, you know, and so when I catch fish, for example, um, you know, I, I'll use, I'll use, you know, as much as possible, but the remains, I mean, it's going to either be buried in the ground where it's going to, instead of going into a dump, you know, into a, you know, with all this other trash, I think it, it needs to be utilized, you know, so buried in the ground where it's going to provide nutrients, you know, for plants and, you know, further life mm -hmm. or, uh, or even just in the ocean, but they used everything, you know, the skins, I mean, the skins of, you know, virtually every animal can be used. They could be used for something, you know, into useful things and the bones for tools. And there's just so much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, I think fur is probably a really good example. Of oh this. yes. And furs are a really tough one because if you, if you had a fur coat now, people would just look at you really negatively, really bad. But there is areas in the world where bears have to be hunted. Wolves have to be hunted. And this is just something that has to happen for conserva conservation of other animals. And it's just something that, that, that happens. So surely those furs should be used and, you know, used and utilized rather than just thrown away or burned. Absolutely. And, and why I'm, I 100% believe that. But if I was to, I guess one of the main ones is with Canadian goose, they have the, the coyote. Uh, I think I think it's coyote fur around the hood, and a lot of people get angry about that. And what? Coyotes are everywhere. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. So a lot of coyotes have to be have to be called to to look after obviously the, the climate. So people get really upset about it, and I think it's because they don't look at why it happens. They just get upset because they see. So you know, you could have a like, for example, you could you know you could go you could hunt a wolf yourself for the right reasons make a, a nice coat or jacket out of it, but nobody's going to ask you where it came from before they attack you for wearing it, if that makes sense. Throw red it, paint on you. <laughs> but that, yeah, exactly. But it, it, it's all, so it's all, it's, it's that kind of catch-22 situation where it's, well, unfortunately they have to die because of the, because of the situation humans have created where we've fucked with the, the ecosystem Unfortunately, we, we're now in a position where we have a responsibility to make sure we call these animals. So what do you want to do? Just, do you want to just not use the meat? Do you want to just throw the fur away? So it's, it's a, it is a really tough one. But also, you, I 100% don't, I don't believe in animals being bred just for their fur. I think that's just equally as disgusting as throwing away the fur from... So I think we've just put ourselves in a situation where no matter what you do, you're always... You're always wrong, or you're going to upset somebody. That's the reality of life on Earth. It is at the it, it, it is at the moment for sure. 
I, I, yeah, so uh, to add to this, I mean, we, we, we have a situation where certain animals are kept in cages and in, in like this industrial mass production of, uh, of fur. And this is what we see, you know, uh, environmental organizations targeting, at least on the surface. Um, but, uh, but we also have situations where sustainable hunt happens, for instance, with the seal. Um, I can tell you, there's not a lot of uh, Arctic peoples uh, who who have a lot of love for for the environmental groups that are trying to ban, or have succeeded in banning uh, uh, seal skin in in the EU, for instance, and also I believe here in the US, um, because there's there are millions of uh, certain types of seals at least, and there are very few peoples who are actually hunting them. Um, you know, when we go to Nunavut and, and Greenland as the two primary uh, areas um, with populations that hunt seals, we're dealing with uh, around 100,000 people. And not all of them, of course, hunt seals at all. So, um, you know, when we talk about state and sustainability, the, uh, the ability to maintain a seal population um, as opposed to like hunting them for, for instance, their fur and such, uh, it's not going to have a major impact on on the population, the seal population and such. But those cute little seals, those pup-looking seals, well. right? Yeah, they are yeah, very and cute. and that that <laughs> very bloody, gory uh, harvesting um, uh, method of like beating them with uh, with bats, right? That's the image that everybody has. Of, oh, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's what comes to my mind straight away. Though I think I feel like it was more. I saw it more when I was maybe like ten years ago. Like that seal clubbing, you would see it kind of on online on Facebook, and it, it spreads around, and then everyone gets really upset about it. And that's uh, that's industrial Canadian seal hunting that has nothing to do with indigenous seal hunting in the Arctic. That's from Labrador. Uh, so still the Arctic, but um, but it's actually uh, an industrial harvest that, uh, that has nothing to do with uh, the uh, the harvesting that happens uh, among indigenous peoples in the Arctic. However, the seal banning is, of course, hurting the indigenous peoples in the Arctic because all of a sudden they can't sell their goods, and that makes them poorer. Um, so, so that's those are some of like these ambiguous conundrums that we're dealing with in this modern world when it comes it's to this. Because there always will be somebody who exploits it, mm-hmm. but there also will be good reason reasons to do things as well. I think the the come away is that people are just shitter. <laughs> <laughs> that's my uh, that's my underlying takeaway is that some humans are just really shitter. <laughs> So yeah, I, th- I think we can we can wrap this one up. This is this has been fun. I feel like I've I've learned a lot. <laughs> Good, I've learned a lot. This has been great. Yeah, yeah it has. Yeah. No, I I I I I have a lot of admiration for your um, you know just going out into tropical and desert climates and just surviving. I mean, I like personally, I I I can do farther north, but. But not that stuff. That I would, that would die immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Every climate is so unique, and and uh, particularly the desert. Just the dryness 
the, mm-hmm. the, the need for water. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a big love for uh, for the desert myself, especially, you know, in, in places like New Mexico and Arizona. But I mean, I always travel around with like a lot of water when I'm there. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> you need it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. No, I mean, yeah, I have a lot of admiration for, for you. I think it's important that people like you do what you do because so much of the knowledge that you have will have been lost and you're having to relearn it. And hopefully through your videos, you can pass it on to others and we can try and keep this alive because more and more of it must be getting lost as generations go on as we get, I like to think, softer. We just become... Definitely softer. Mm-hmm. We are, but uh, yeah, it, it becomes more and more challenging because, um, as you're talking about, you know, controlling the uh, the seal hunting. Um, I mean, there's there's so many places where you're not even allowed to pick fruit or you know leaves. I mean, it's just um, there seems to be less and less opportunity uh, every day to practice these uh, you know sustainable survival skills. Um, you know, in, in a way, we're forcibly being disconnected from nature. You know, there's just, just less and less opportunity legally to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I imagine the places you are, there's not going to be many people. Well, I avoid people. I... Yeah, <laughs> I avoid people. Um, my, my goal is to not see anybody where, where I go. So. <laughs> And, uh, and really it's not doing harm. It's, um, you know, uh, harvesting wild, uh, you know, foods can benefit the natural environment. You could benefit a lot, you know, the presence of man. Um, I mean, there's areas that are overgrown with lots of dead brush and stuff. And what natives did is they would collect that and burn it, you know, for the mm-hmm. fires. But there, and, and, and when you clear that, it makes, it allows more new growth to to appear you know so it really helps nature when when man does participate in in the environment there um but what we've done is we've forbidden man to do that in many areas you Mm -hmm. know and and you mentioned overpopulation of certain species you know that uh, causes the imbalance you know you, you can't can't hunt coyotes and so uh the rabbit population is small and the coyotes are starving you know and so there's all kinds of imbalances that happen as a result of man being forbidden to enter and, and, uh, and take from nature, but it has to be done, you know, in a responsibly way. Yeah, so that's, you, you need the education. We've, we've, we've created this situation we're in now and it's not, it's not going anywhere. The, the cities aren't going anywhere. It's not going to change. So we have a responsibility to make sure we try and keep everything else as balanced as possible. And you, it, unfortunately, yes. it's not just a case of we can just leave it alone and allow it to, to naturally do what it's going to do because some things don't have predators anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're, we're very much a part of the fabric of nature, you know, and uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting because you, you, have, you have nature and you have man. There's, there's like the separation that we, we have in our culture, you know, the wilderness and nature, and we separate ourselves from nature. We call, you know, it's man-made, you know, there's naturally made. And so there's this big wall between us, you know, in our mindset, but it wasn't like that before where 
humans were very much a part of nature and nature was a part of humans. That's how it was meant to be. We, we certainly still are, right? We're, uh, and the thing is that we're actually engaging more with nature in certain ways than, than we were back when we lived naturally um, because we're encroaching on, uh, upon so many spaces in nature. Right mm -hmm. through our resource extractions in different ways, we're going places and changing the environment and changing how the landscape looks and so on. Uh, that that you know never happened uh, before. You know, uh, if, like just think of strip mining uh, or uh, drilling for oil in 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 the Arctic. Those kinds of things. That that's like major changes, right? Oh, so absolutely. What we, and what we're basically doing is that we're engaging more with nature now than, you know, that hunter that would cross uh, the ice uh, to to find an animal to, uh, to eat and then go back home. Right. That's a much different motive. Yeah. Know, the motivation is is more of greed of taking. It's not giving back. Whereas before, man, man was uh, nurturing more of nature. Mm -hmm. I, I think they had more of an understanding that more of an idea of sustainability they knew if they had x amount of animals in an area if they killed them all then they were out of animals so but if you killed one or two and allowed them to repopulate then you had a long-term source of source of food so i think that the idea of sustainability was there whereas now it's take what you can make as much as money as you can and get the fuck out that's the unfortunate way that it seems to be kind of what the vikings also did actually in greenland <laughs> and, and in, in iceland they killed off the the, the walrus population you can sort of like follow their migrations based off of where the walrus once was and then it dies off as they show up and then they go farther and farther north <laughs> in that case so, some things never change well, I mean, there was a financial incentive, mm -hmm. right? Well, yeah. This was to sell the ivory um, and and use the skin for uh, ropes and stuff like that. So, 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 yeah, it is the uh, it's the money incentive when mm -hmm. that shows up. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, absolutely. Yeah, um, Sophie's just said that she loves survival stuff, but you make you make her feel like such a wimp, and I think I feel I feel like that as well. You know, I'm. I'm this, I don't know what I weigh now, like a hundred and hundred and eight kilo extra rugby player, decent sized human being. And then I'm like, you know, if I was out in the wild, I'd be so fucked. I just wouldn't. <laughs> like, I, I imagine I would try and figure it out, but it's just the, my, it's knowledge. Knowledge means so much, I guess, when it comes to, to survival and being out there on your own. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Knowing what to do and, and knowing a lot about yourself, as I, as I mentioned earlier, kind of knowing your limitations, your discomfort levels, you know, what, what you really need and in order to stay healthy and strong. Perfect. Yeah, no, let, let's wrap this up. Chav, you got, do you want to give your YouTube channel a shout out, your Instagram, wherever anyone can find, find your work? Hopefully a bunch of people are going to come and watch your videos. Yeah, if, on YouTube, if you just Google my name, Chad Zuber. That's uh, with a Z-U-B-E-R. My channel will pop up. And uh, on Instagram, uh, Chad Zuber Official. And I'm pretty active on there. Um, I try to respond to all the direct messages. I, I try my best. <laughs> it's hard work. But, uh, yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. There we go. So, Mateus, where can, where can people find you? 
you can always find me on Instagram by my name, Matthias Nordvig. Um, yeah. And you can always check out my website, nordicmythologychannel.com. Uh, until I change it to something else <laughs> <laughs> and yeah that's that's really it <laughs> perfect this is where I get to reel off our huge list of huge list of things, All the things. Um, I've made a list this time so I don't miss anything so you can you can check us out on our Instagram which is at Nordic Mythology Podcast on Instagram we have a, a bunch of videos on our YouTube channel as well we put some highlights on there of the new episodes. Um, everybody gets access to all videos after 30 days. So once the video comes out, once the episode's released, the video goes out exclusively on Patreon after 30 days, it then hits the, the YouTube channel. So if you do want to see videos earlier, just pop over to our Patreon. Obviously, follow us on NET and you get access to the video episodes right away. Uh, over on our website, you can check out our T-shirts and our merch. They've literally just arrived with me, so they've started going out to people. I've got one on now, which is the Odin Raven T-shirt that the Raven from the North did for us. Um, if you want to join in with any chats with myself and, myself and Mateus and other viewers, listeners, you can join us on our Discord channel. You don't have to follow us on Patreon or support us on Patreon or any of those things. It's completely free. Just pop in there. We talk about the episodes after the show and just general discussions. Obviously, you do want to help us out a little bit more. Patreon's a brilliant way. And we have a bunch of different tiers with a with a load of different rewards at each level. And once we hit 100 uh, patrons, we're going to release a brand new weekly show. It's just a watch-along show of the TV series Vikings where me and Mateus sit down and critique the, the show, tell you what we like, what we don't like. Uh, have a laugh and it'll be just like a nice little hangout style so Chad this has been fun thank you very much like I said it's extremely fascinating for me I think it's so fascinating because it's something that it's so unusual to me and out of my comfort zone I just want to learn more and listen to, to things and try and understand how how people would have lived and survived thank you yeah it's been a pleasure for me too eat yeah. your garlic <laughs> eat your garlic yeah <laughs> you'll have good breath <laughs> <laughs> awesome.